It's the Urban Parlay with your host, Sandra DuBose. Vibe with the tribe that'll take your stress away. Right here on the Urban Parlay. Bonjour and welcome everyone to the Urban Parlay podcast. I am your host, Sandra DuBose, and I have the absolute pleasure of spending time with one of the most amazing and dynamic women I literally have ever met. This is a woman who is just wise. She is incredibly talented. She is bold and she is unapologetic. And I want to be like her when I grow up. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Urban Parlay podcast, none other than the North Carolina Poet Laureate, Jackie Shelton Green. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, Sandra. I am truly humbled and honored that you would have me on your show. I think this is a tremendous service that you're offering to our community to, to bring us all together in a time when we can't be together. So thank you. And, and I am a big fan, you know, I'm a, I got a girl crush on you <laughs> from when I met you years ago. So it's always mutual and it's always good to, to be in the company of, of good sisters. I'm so grateful. I know your schedule is crazy because everybody wants a piece of Miss Jackie Shelton Green and to glean from her wisdom, especially April is Poetry Awareness Month. And so this is your time to really, really get the word out and to share all of the beautiful work that you've created. And speaking of such, can you talk a little bit about what is a Poet Laureate and how did you get to become the first African-American in North Carolina. So the mission, the, the role of a poet laureate in any state is to serve as an ambassador of the literary arts. So my responsibility is to be an ambassador, be a, a public face, to promote and celebrate the diversity of literature across the state of North Carolina. Uh, and I take that very, very seriously because North Carolina is such a diverse, we're, we're so diverse. The voices here are just tremendous in terms of, of difference. And not only that, there are indigenous voices here and people who live in rural isolated communities who might not even have an arts council in their town. And um, I'm everywhere. I'm from the university to public school, the private school, the retirement home, the congregation home, juvenile detention. I'm everywhere. Um, right. And yeah, I take it very, very seriously, especially my goal wanting to say to people, your stories matter. And I've worked with people on their lunch break at a factory, people who, you know, like, up in the mountains, I mean, serious mountain folk who are like, yeah, I've been writing for a long time. And the boss man lets me come in and do a 45 minute poetry session with people in the meal. Wow. They're writers also, their voices matter. The work I've done with women on death row, and this is prior to, let me just say this. There is nothing that I'm doing as the poet laureate that I was not doing before the poet laureate. Okay. Not absolutely nothing. I'm just doing more of it. 
same audiences, same work. Has it increased, extended? Yes. But this is the work I've been doing for 40 some years, which brings us to the question of uh, selection process. There is a committee that's comprised through the Department of Cultural Resources, a selection committee to select uh, the poet laureate each time it rolls around. Anyone in the state of North Carolina and anywhere can nominate someone who they think should be the poet laureate. They send those names, they submit those names to Cultural Resources Department, North Carolina Arts Council. They send those names to the selection committee. If your name floats to the top, because I think there were thousands of names this year or the year I was selected. Wow. They weed through those names and they select three or four and they send them to the governor's office. So the governor of North Carolina is where the buck stops. The governor of North Carolina selects the poet laureate of North Carolina. Right. And before Jim Hunt, the North Carolina poet laureate was a lifetime position. And Jim Hunt had the good wisdom to make it a two-year term or as long as the governor deems necessary. You know, I'm only the ninth for that reason. Some states are on their 100th poet laureate. Some states are on their 50th poet laureate. I'm only the ninth and I'm only the third woman. So that's the selection process. Is it something that was on your bucket list? No, I'm not that writer. I'm not that creative maker. I'm not that creative being. Um, okay. I love writing. Writing is my yoga. Mm, I love that. Writing is my breath. Writing is my yoga. Now, my goal, and I've been writing since I was a teenager, but as an adult teacher of writing, um, mentor, my mission has always been to facilitate processes where people can discover their own voices and discover how powerful their stories are and to encourage them to tell the power of utterance. The power, the power of, of utterance. utterance. Not just Black people, too many factions of human beings have been silenced, their voices erased, their voices usurped, disenfranchised, muted, and sometimes their story rewritten. And people can make up a story about you. I mean, how many times have you and I and probably anyone listening how many times have we walked into a room and someone makes up a story about us based on nothing? Right, right. We walk in a room, people check you out. They look at what you're wearing and look at the car you get out of. They're checking you out and they make up their own story. Indeed. And even when you tell them, no, that's not me. Even when you tell them your story, if they have power, their story can be the, the story about you. Oh, yes. I come from a place of, if you don't tell people who you are, they will tell you who you are. Wow. And it's important for me that generations of little brown children, any little children coming out of, out of these clay grounds of North Carolina understand that they're worthy. So I, I have been doing this work from a place of I'm not the one that needs to be at the table. Okay. I mean, I'm at a lot of tables. Yeah, you are. 
And this is what I've been saying to a lot of Black folk who over the years have said, well, you know, we never get invited to this conference over here. And blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, why are we doing our own conference? Right. Like, instead of always whining about why white folk ain't letting you in the door, mm-hmm. we're in places where we can open doors. And this comes down to another thing about, you know, and we can talk about this and not talk about this, but people who are gatekeepers. You know, how, how folk to get to a certain place, they don't want anybody else to be. They want to be a font, first only Negro there. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> you got to say that again. You called it a font. First only Negro there. I love that. I'm going to put that in my pocket. Parents would say, oh, you know, my boy, he's been at IBM 35, 40 years. He's still the first only one there in his department. Well, if that's true, there's something wrong. Right. So no, this was not on my bucket list. I'm honored. I'm humbled by my peers, by the state of North Carolina, by so many people that celebrate and support me on this journey. I'm truly honored. But my bucket list was to excite people. That's why I started my business, Sister Write, to encourage women to write. So yeah, no, it wasn't on my bucket list, but it was a lovely gift. (laughs) we accept that (laughs) about a few years ago um in 2011 i was very ill with lyme disease i was in a wheelchair for about three years i was having some serious neurological issues i couldn't couldn't talk my brain wasn't working i could not have been having this conversation with you because i'd be looking at you going who is that no way talking about oh my goodness um And when I was sitting in that wheelchair, I started thinking about how much the literary community had passed me by. I mean, I'm sick, but new gatekeepers, the millennials have taken over on a whole lot of levels. They all know me. Mm. (laughs) And I'm thinking, wow, how am I going to reinvent myself when I'm out of this? I never said if I got, I was determined that that wheelchair was not my life. So I kept thinking, what am I going to do? So I, I started thinking about, and this is a process I've been doing all my professional life. I started making my list of everything I will not do, everything that I'm not interested in doing, everything that you can't ask me to do that. And then I made my list of what were the things that I had been dreaming about for years, but never had the resources, the time, I've always had to work. I've always been a working class writer. And what kept rising to the top was I'd always wanted to have a business that facilitated writing retreats for women. Nice. But not necessarily you have to be a writer to come. It's for any woman who is interested in expanding, exploring their creativity. So how can people learn more about Sister Wright, is there a website specifically or should they just follow you on social media so that when you have things together for 2022, they can, you know, be the first dibs? Well, they'll be after me because I'm putting in mine first. (laughs) You are on the list. You have a reserve spot. So um, thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) They can follow me on Instagram at Green Jackie and Facebook, of course, Jackie Shelton Green and JackieSheltonGreen.com. You can order the album from there as well as when I'm ready, I'll start posting 
venues that Sister Right will be providing. Women who have come with me who said they weren't writers, they leave writers. They leave writers. So let's talk about that because I love what you said. You said, poetry is my yoga, right? And so I want to talk a little bit about just your background. So do you come from a poetic family? You know, a lot of times you may see a singer and and they say, yeah, my mama sings, my daddy sings, my whole family just be jamming, you know, during the holidays, you know? So is that your story? Do you just have all of these amazing, prolific writers and you guys just love words and come together and say a bunch of big words and stuff? (laughs) Well, I come from a family of educators. Okay, okay. Educators. My mother's 104, and she's still a prolific reader. I grew up with books. I grew up with a grandmother next door who loved poetry. Mm-hmm. Did she introduce you to poetry? She did. I was a very nosy child in church. <laughs> in church specifically? Specifically in church. I was very nosy. I was nosy, period. I have come to learn that writers must be nosy. Very curious. But anyway, my grandmother would give me little books, little notebooks in church to write in. I would sit there and in my little pea brain, I I said I was writing my stories. By the time I became an adolescent, I was slipping my, you know, it's cute when you're five, but you know, you're not supposed to be sitting in church at 13 writing in your journal. But I, I managed to, I would slip my journals into church and and I would fix my coat like a little tent. Nobody knew I was sitting there writing. I would write about everything around me. Did you? Yeah. And my grandmother encouraged me to write. My mom started giving me diaries when I was like elementary school. And I still have every diary. Every Christmas, I got a diary. Are you kidding me? She encouraged me to keep diaries. I love it. So the power of writing, the act itself of writing has just always, I'm obsessed with I love paper. I love beautiful pens. You know, when I was when I was young, it was fountain pens. I I had a wonderful collection of antique fountain pens, and and my daddy used to buy me ink. You know, I was just and I have like I still have like antique ink wells that my father gave me. That is incredible. So so you you one of those people? Would you say? You always knew it just was something that was an innate, natural thing for you to be a writer, to have this inquisitiveness about the world. But I didn't say I was going to be a writer. That's just it. I I loved writing. My background is I have a bachelor's in education, K to three, and I have a master's in economics, community economic development. Wow. So I've never, you know, I wasn't interested in a master's in creative writing. I'm still not interested in MFA. Major in English. Because unless you want to go teach at the university level, you really don't need an MFA. And I'm not hung up on credentials or titles in the way that other people are. I have a master's in community economic development because there's a, an activist advocate side of me, political side of me, that I know that poems will not feed. They may feed your soul, but they're not going to pay the bills. They're not going to help you get a small business loan. So I wanted to have the expertise as a community economic development practitioner where I understood I could go, I could work with a low wealth community who wanted to build a daycare center or a small business. 
and help you write the business plan or help you write your bylaws for your nonprofit. Uh, right. So when I said I've always worked, I've always worked in service. Can you talk a little bit about how do you balance out your passion? And you knew I am a writer. This is who I am. And I'm not only a writer, I'm a damn good writer. <laughs> like, And yet I still have responsibilities and balancing that out that I'm not a starving artist, but I'm, I'm still staying true to who I am. Can you talk a little bit about that? Interesting that you asked that. So I have a lot of opinion about that. <laughs> okay. That has not been my trajectory. I think that people have their own processes. First of all, I have never been driven by the commercialism of being a writer. I've never said I want to be a famous writer and have a book on the bestseller list. When I say writing is my yoga, it is my yoga. There are days I don't want to write. There are days I could care less about writing. There are days I don't want to be the poet laureate. Can I just like go in the backyard and plant some tomatoes? So I don't have that obsession with that title, with that thing that some people do. I mean, I'm, I'm in awe of people who make those kind of sacrifices. I made a lot of sacrifices also. I mean, as I was coming into the tip of being published and everything, I was a divorced woman raising three children. First two, and then a second marriage that failed. And then there were three. Wow. So... I have always said to myself, my children come first, my family comes, comes first. When they were young, I found the time, I created. I'm a, like a, I'm the best time management person in the world. Really? I mean, <laughs> okay. just like now when I do my schedule and it has a thousand speaking venues, there's a one o'clock dentist, two o'clock laundry, Right. You know, but when they were young, I found my my space and created a rhythm with my children where they had everything they needed and most of the things they wanted. And I was very transparent about like this is how much money we have after I pay the bills. Right. We do this, blah, 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 blah. This is the money for recreation. You got a field trip coming up. But my kids were able to buy into my saying to them on Saturday morning, I am not yours until noon. Wow. They were old enough. You know, they were, my youngest child is 11 years older than her oldest sister who died. So at Mm -hmm. 11, you know, it's like play with Eva. Right. (laughs) Mommy's not available. I was not available. And that was my time to write. That's so powerful. And they understood. I mean, they weren't neglected. They're in a home. I'm, I'm just in my door. And I would hear them outside the door. Uh, when Eva was like six years old, that was still our routine. Okay. And I would hear them say, you better not knock on that door. <laughs> it's not 12 o'clock yet. You're going to get in trouble. It's not 12 o'clock yet. <laughs> Eva would send me little notes on the door. Can I go play with so-and-so? Can so-and-so come over to play? I would ignore you would ignore them. <laughs> One o'clock, I'm yours. I was the mom. Come home to work. We do dinner. We do homework. We socialize, baths, bedtime. Then it was my time. But I wrote. I mean, I created this rhythm in my life where 
if a Saturday morning I came out of the room at 10 o'clock, they were like, you're not riding? Mom, no, I'm not riding today. Let's go, let's go horseback riding. Nice. But they moved in that rhythm. I didn't want to create a situation where they were moving against it. I didn't want to have this lifestyle. And I had friends who had yeah. these models of they're on welfare. They were artists. Okay. They're on welfare. Their children grew up very poor. They didn't have to. Mm. And, and I remember one woman saying to me, you don't understand. You're not willing to make the sacrifice. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm not willing for my children to do their homework by candlelight. Uh-oh. And I've been to your house for dinner. No, they're tired. Like, no, they're not doing beans and rice every night. Mm, we're going to have some meat on this table if we want it. <laughs> call me what you want. And, and, and at that point, we were vegetarians. But call me what you want. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do this my way. Very successful writer, but I remember right now the relationship with her children, her adult children, is very wide because of how they grew up. Her thing was, I am going to be an artist and a writer, and everybody else just get with the program. Really? That just was not who I, I knew that I could be at all. Not with a super woman or not the strong black woman, uh-uh that I could practice balance. Nice. And I saw that, I saw that in my family. I saw my mother do it. I saw my aunts do it. They all taught school and then they didn't taught, they, then they had their lives. They had lives, right. So I remember I, there have been, people have said things to me like, you're not hungry enough. I remember in the eighties, a friend of mine said, I just can't believe you're, you're not further along than you are. And I'm like, I'm not willing to play the games you're playing. Wow. So we good. I'm there now. I'm there now. And this person is still playing games. Right. But it's just how you're wired. No, I don't think there's a wrong way or a right way. They're just different ways. On my path, I don't judge people. Sure. I don't judge people for what they do, but my purpose for writing was not for fame. Mm -hmm. It was to, to tell the stories that were important to me. And do you feel like, like they always say, you don't chase money, right? You chase what your passion is. You, you do your art because you love it. And then the money and everything else will follow. Do you feel like that's been your experience? Yeah, because I mean, yeah. daily I get, emails or telephone calls. And I'm like, how am I even on your radar? I mean, wow. You know, the commission work that I get out of state, out of the country. For me, it's, it's my life's work. I'm going to be doing this for a long time, prayerfully. And I've always said, I've been saying this for 40 some years. If I never publish another book in life, it does not mean I stop being a writer. My goal was never to publish. I'm grateful that I have eight publications, but that not my purpose. Right. And I'm glad you touched on that because like you said, you do have eight publications and then you also just talked about your daughter who has passed. And so talk to me about, I want to undie you. Can you tell me a little bit about whatever you're comfortable with sharing about your daughter and her passing and how I want to undie you, how that came to be? Certainly. 
So Imani Shelton Green, my daughter, died at the age of 38, 12 years ago. Mm. She would have turned 50 this year. I'm sorry. Imani was an amazing human being. She just finished her second master's and had been accepted to work on her doctoral and had met the love of her life. She died two weeks before her wedding. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. She um, developed a, a cancer that not only hospitals here in North Carolina, but Yale Medical and um, John Hopkins, they couldn't name it. Yeah. But anyway, Imani died in 2009. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to write about her. Okay. And it just wasn't happening. And I just, I stopped. I didn't force it. Right. I, I knew that when it was ready, when the time was right, I knew I'd write. Sure. 2017, that's how long it took. 2017, I'm in my study and I'm on my bookshelf looking for a book. Mm-hmm. And somehow I knocked another book off the shelf and it fell on my foot. I didn't have one shoes and it hurt. And I picked it up and it was a, a, a journal that I did not recognize. Mm-hmm. But what is this? And I opened it. It was a journal that I had started on the day that she was diagnosed with cancer. Oh, wow. I went to the back. So the last entry in my journal was the morning she died. I had forgotten that I started that journal. Right. Beside it was her journal because Imani journaled her, her cancer journey. Did she? And I sat down with the two books and they were like a call and response. They were, it was like a conversation between she and I. Oh my gosh. And I just, I just put them back on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Sat with them for a while and I just put them back on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Well, few, I don't know, maybe less than a week later, Four o'clock in the morning, these lines, I want to undie you. I want to undie you. Woke me up and I started writing. Every morning for about a month, these little lines would come. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a book, but it's one long poem. People started calling me, writing to me, thanking me for writing the book. I remember a doctor who had treated me wrote me this long email and he, he just said, thank you for writing this book. He said, I lost my son. And it was like, a, it was a long email. And he said, this is what every parent wants to say. I want to undie you. And he said, I saw the newspaper article about the book. I went out and got it. And he said, he said it's everything I've, and he just said, thank you for, for saying because we live in a culture where, you know, saying I want to and die you is almost taboo. And a culture that wants you to hurry up and get over it. Mm. So that's the book. Uh, it's a lovely book. How can people get it? You can get it from Jakar Press, J-A-T-A-R Press.org. Okay. But the new news is uh, it was recently choreographed by Elon University dance department and any day now i'm expecting a shipment of books from italy it's been translated into italian it's the english and italian version together there's an italian version of the book so for me that's the power of of language is how do we how do we write stories how do i write 
in a way that connects our humanity. If I write a book, and if the only people who read the book and get it are people from the South, I failed. If I write a book, and if only Black people get it, I failed. If I write a book, and if only Black women got it, I failed. If only just women get it. But when I'm you know, reading my work, I'm thinking about how does this touch any human being? Right. Because that's what art should do. We should, we should walk into a room and like go, oh my God, like a painting just pulls us in or, or we wake up and there's this piece of music we've never heard before that just like hits us in the heart. Mm-hmm. That's the power of art. Yes. And when we are listening to it, nobody is saying, what does that person look like? I wonder, we don't care. Right. It's the essence of the music. It's the essence of that art, the way that person uses color that's pulling you in. Right. Could be a 17th century Scottish musician. (laughs) Right. So if the work is not, for me, work that transcends, that can cross borders, for me, art is a very powerful bridge. We come in all of our otherness and all of our differences and it's where we find ourselves over and over again in each other's stories. Do you remember what the very first poem is that you wrote? I do. I read it when I was very young, not very young. I mean, eighth grade maybe. And it was something that I'd witnessed. And I remember the whole poem. What does it say? Tell me what you remember. It's a, it's a very short poem. It's like maybe four lines, but it was... um. Brand new Converse PF flyers, dot. Mary Jane's in my pocket, dot. And it was some, it was a, there was another line, I don't remember it. But the last, the very last line was, saw a white man run from a black boy, exclamation point. Mm. And I wrote that in the eighth grade. I witnessed this white man harassing this young black boy. Right. And he kept on and the dude picked up a stick and started chasing him. And I was like, yes. <laughs> and I remember I sat down and wrote that poem. Wow. Can you talk about your daughter? The experience, like you said, that man reached out to you and said that you gave voice to the emotions that parents feel in those kind of circumstances. How did that experience change you? And what did you learn from that? Because, you know, from the outside looking in, it always seems like that is the most unbearable. I don't even know how I'd get out of the bed or even want to continue life with something that is so devastating. But here you are flourishing and still holding her memory and her legacy and all of that. How did you get there? And what what did that experience teach you? Well, I think Imani guided us to this place as um, mm. as she was living with the cancer. She was very, very adamant to be as alive, even when she was in hospice. Mm. Imani was alive up until the moment when she was not alive. She was alive. Even in those days in hospice, she was a declaration of I'm still here. And I remember a girlfriend of mine who was diagnosed with a very severe cancer called me a few years later and she said to me, I'm not afraid. She said, I'm okay. She said, our sweetie Monty taught us how to die. 
She said, Molly taught us all how to die in a tender way, in a sweet way. And she was right. She was right. Imani was very alive even as she was leaving this life. Wow. And I did go through that spectrum of yeah. not wanting to get up, not wanting to, just not knowing how to put one foot in front of the other. But I also kept saying to myself, you are the mother to two other children. And the, the legacy you cannot leave for them and Imani is for them to say, wow, our sister died and mama just, just gave up. She just went to the grave with her. She forgot about us. So I had to remember that Imani was my firstborn, but she was one of my children. And that there were two other children who also were trying to stay alive because they lost, they were really suffering from the loss of their sister. Sure. So as the mother, it was my job to take care of everybody. So did I grieve? Yes, I did not postpone my grief. And I remember I had a girlfriend who kept calling me. She called me one day and she said, have you wailed yet? And I said, huh? She said, no, nah, you ain't well. She hung up and called me like a few weeks later. And she said, have you? And she's like, no, nah, you ain't well yet. I mean, and she did it like four times. And like, I called her one day and I said, I wailed. I wailed. And, mm. and I was like, what's she talking? I said, yeah, I went to that wall. Yes. And, um, wow. Until you do. Right. You don't know that you can live. Whew. You don't know. You don't. It's almost like you forget that you know that you can. So it was a, a very instructive journey experience for all of us. Mm -hmm. Keep Imani alive. I mean, we miss her tremendously. Sure. Uh, her spirit is with us. It's always with us. Yeah. What advice? Um, and thank you so much for sharing that. I know how how heavy that is. I'm like trying not to well up with tears and, and ruin everything. <laughs> but I feel that. I feel that so deeply. And in this day and age, this time that we're in right now with COVID, this pandemic, you know, we're still smack dab in the middle of all of this. And 2020, you just scroll on social media and you're just offering condolences, right? And we've lost over 500,000 people, you know, within the year of 2020. And so grief is, it is just the season that we are in collectively as people are finding ways to manage and deal with all of the different stages of grief. And that's why this is so, it's so important. And so as someone who has moved through such a tragic experience, is there any one piece of advice that you've learned about the grief process that you would share with someone who's maybe in that season of grief right now, as especially as we're dealing with this pandemic that we're still dealing with? Well, for me, it's not a season. There are many seasons of grief. And it's like a roller coaster of anger, shame. I was like, you know, the mama bear. Maybe we should have taken her to another hospital. Maybe we should have taken her to another doctor. Uh, you take yourself through all of these changes. Yeah. All of these seasons of not trusting yourself. Sadness. Yeah. Imani died on our anniversary. Wow. And our anniversary is on. June 4th. And that first year, I couldn't, I told my husband, I said, I, 
I, I said, this is, I can't like. Right, right. I can't separate the two. I don't know what to do. Yeah. Um, I think it was year three. He said, we're going out to dinner. He sent me flowers, bought me some gifts. He said, he said, because Imani wanted this for us. I mean, she celebrates us. She loves us. She would not want us not. We find ways to celebrate her. I think for us, rituals, having rituals, we visit her grave site. Uh, it's very close to our house. It's about, about two miles from our house. My children, two Christmases ago, my Christmas gift was a bench. Uh, they, they purchased a bench and put it by her grave so we can go out. I can go out and sit. I love that. Her friends will call me when they come to town. She went to A&T. She has friends who come home for homecoming. We're, we're down here. We're at the grave. Come on down. I go out and I play music for her. I was like, oh, you introduced me to Erica Badu. Let me introduce you to, you know, we go there and people have been there, left flowers. We don't know who. For me, it was about grace. I had to find solid ground. And the metaphor I had was that I was in a boat out in the middle of the ocean. Mm -hmm. But I could see shore and I could see all my family and friends on shore. And they were all beckoning me to come in. And I was like, mm -mm. and I just kept seeing myself in that boat. And when it was time for me to come back ashore, I came back because I knew that they were, they were all saying, we're here. Don't go too far out there because we can't come get you. We can't walk on the water. And that was my metaphor for myself. I always knew that I would not drown, but I also knew that I could not go over, around, or under. I had to go through. You had to go through. I think what happens is when people think they have the power to change things that we, that, you know, like, this ain't my business. This is God's business. I was blessed to be the vessel, the urn, the life urn to bring her into this space. But she was never fully mine. Our children are not our children. They are our children. They don't belong to us. And that's that's a hard one for parents. But I I had to remember it. I had to keep telling myself that I had been blessed with her as this gift, that I was blessed to even be her mother and to honor that and to live a life, to live a life to honor it. I love that. <sighs> I have one last question for you as we close. And again, thank you so much for taking this time. The one question that comes to mind for me, I think about people like Anina Simone or Billie Holiday. You know, that movie is out right now, the United States versus Billie Holiday and all the flack that she got for writing Strange Fruit and all the, you know, wahala around it. And we think about all of these artists, whether it's Bob Marley, what have you. It's not until when they leave us, or even someone like Martin Luther King, right? You know, they do all of this work while they're with us. We kind of don't give them their just due. We don't fully see their value. Do you feel like that that could possibly be the story for you? Like, it's not until after the fact that people then, they pick up the poetry of Jackie Shelton Green, because 
I experienced your work and I'm like, OMG, the whole entire world needs to know, just like Amaya Angelou, the, the level of work that you're giving. Do you feel like maybe it's not until after that they'll pick it up and then have a different like, oh my God, this was genius. And they miss it while you're sitting here. Do you ever think about that? I don't. Um, I always believe it's kind of like the people in the room are the people who are supposed to be in the room. Okay. The people who are reading you, who come across you, who discover you are the people that you're supposed to be there for. I'm in a lot of public venues. You know, I, I did a United Nations. I did a poem for this trafficking women girl trafficking international project there were 700 people wow on that google from all over the world there were five americans on the on the google out of 700 people you know the fact that i'm teaching poetry to a poetry club a group of seventh graders in saudi arabia we we're online every wednesday that's awesome you see what I'm saying is that I feel like I'm reaching who the universe says needs to hear the work. My my career as a poet has connected me to people who are like in my life mm-hmm. um, to the end. Right. And that ain't got nothing to do with poetry. <laughs> you know what I'm saying is like, like the universe, you know, like poetry is like the vehicle for certain people who have come into my life. Right. You know, that I would not have met otherwise. I believe that whatever my mission here in this place on this earth, whatever it is, I'm actualizing it. I'm manifesting it. Nice. Yeah. You know, I'm just here to do the work. You know, I'm I'm a humble servant to my creativity, to seeing how it can show up in the world, how it builds community with other people, how it can. I keep using the word medicine, but I believe that creativity is medicine. It is. Sometimes it's the medicine that folk don't even know they need. Sometimes when your girlfriend drags you out to a concert that you really don't want to go to, and then you're like, oh my God, thank you so much for making me do this. I didn't know I needed that. I would agree. So sometimes we don't know what we need. The universe brings it to us. Well, the universe absolutely knew that we all at the Urban Parlay podcast needed to sit at your feet uh, this evening and just to hear, I mean, the things that you've shared, honestly, just pouring your heart and letting us see your heart as far as with your daughter and, you know, your advice about grief that so many people can really connect to and the beauty of artistry and the power of the writer's voice. So I wanna encourage you know those people that are out there, poetry can be your yoga. A lot of times I think as artists, we have a hard time producing something because we're already judging it before we even get it down on paper. We're already thinking, oh, this is stupid. You know, we, we cut ourselves off and it's really about finding that flow of creativity, just allowing yourself without apology without trying to judge it but just authentically share who you are in the form that is your own and that's the beauty of what Jackie Shelton Green is doing and you can see how it has blessed her life and it has blessed all of our lives because she said yes to the universe and she just lives authentically in the gifts that she's been given so we thank you so much 
once Thank again. You. Absolutely. And so I hope you've enjoyed. No, I know you have enjoyed this episode of the Urban Parlay podcast. And until next time, I bid you adieu. I am your host, Sandra DeBose. I wish you peace and blessings. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of the Urban Parlay podcast. If you have enjoyed this content, please go ahead and subscribe and then invite all your friends. Tell them to come hang out and vibe with your new tribe. If you would like to support with a donation, you can do so via Cash App at dollar sign Urban Parlay Podcast and via PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Urban Parlay. Thanks. It's the Urban Parlay. Vibe with the tribe right here on the Urban Parlay.